Hello and welcome to this week's Propcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we're joined by Chris Walters, who's Head of UK Life Sciences at JLL, and Glenn Crocker, who's the Executive Director at Pioneer Group. Pioneer Group, one of the most interesting, exciting real estate businesses in Europe. Fantastic to have you here, Glenn. Now, you began your career in science and as Pioneer Group, you've got 10 locations, around 600 occupiers and a development pipeline in excess of 2 million square foot. And you've got presence across all of the UK. And what's really exciting is you're working across both landscapes of real estate and science. Tell us a little bit about how that's working for you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, way back when I was uh, originally a research scientist and so spent a fair amount of time at the lab bench, then went into EY, got a load of business experience, qualified as an accountant as well, spent time in Palo Alto in the life science sector, Cambridge, heading up the biotech practice for EY. And then I went from there over to BioCity, which is basically a bunch of empty buildings in the middle of Nottingham, which I was supposed to fill with life science companies, didn't have a clue about real estate at all. In fact, I didn't even know it was called real estate, I don't think, at the time. And then it just sort of went from there. Built focus was always on the companies, which is what I knew about. And the real estate sort of came secondary to that. And I think that's followed through all the way from the beginnings of BioCity and into Pioneer Group today, that it's about the companies and what goes on inside the buildings as opposed to the buildings themselves. Well, absolutely, yeah. Buildings don't cure cancer, do they? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, they provide a vital function, of course. Without them, without the labs, you couldn't do any of the work. Absolutely. But absolutely. you need great companies inside them to really make those buildings work, and that's that's what we're focused so, on. So tell us about life in Palo Alto. I mean, that's a, a distant dream for many people, probably in Nottingham, right? Yeah, Palo Alto is fantastic. I mean, I'd still be there if it wasn't for the fact that I had kids going to school and... We wanted to school them back in the UK, but it was around the time of a real boom in the life science sector. So spent all my time doing IPOs with companies. When was this? What year was this? This was around uh, 2000, around the turn of the century. So there, it was the dot-com boom, the life sciences boom, worked with companies like Genentech and a load of great companies in the sector. Mm. And it was so exciting. Plus, yeah, Palo Alto is a beautiful place to live and work. But not as beautiful as Nottingham, we must stress. Obviously not as beautiful as Nottingham. And obviously the weather's better in Nottingham as well. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And so what was the genesis then of BioCity? Was there a vision to create an incubator, a, a, a house for growing up life science businesses? Uh, it was. I mean, I was recruited to the role, so I can't claim that I was the genesis of the initial vision, but I was the founding CEO. So I was brought into the role to create this environment for growing early stage life science companies. Uh, we started out with 55,000 square feet and no companies at all. And the only way that we could fill that space was to get involved in creating the companies in the first place. So roll my sleeves up worked on the business plans, helped them raise money, got them into the building. And then they grew and grew and grew from that, filled up the space. Then we took another building and then another building and the rest is history, really. And then we brought another site from Merck in Scotland, did a partnership with uh, AstraZeneca to run Audley Park site, and then did a partnership with Boots as well to do an incubator on Boots. So we did a lot about partnerships, working closely with pharmaceutical companies as well. So getting that integration between 
the small companies and the big pharmaceutical sector was really really important mm, so two decades ahead of most people it's pretty impressive stuff chris waters glenn's talking about fifty-five thousand square foot that they started with according to some of your research and you correct me if i'm wrong there's only about fifty-five thousand square foot remaining on the market in the uk the market's gone mad yeah it's certainly a very supply starved market at the moment from an existing supply perspective i think the you, you look at markets like cambridge oxford and london there's no purpose-built lab space being delivered in any of those markets this year the current position looks a bit bleak, but I think what is really reassuring is that the real estate community, you know, which we are Pioneer Group are a key part of, are investing into this sector. They're bringing forward much needed space and we're seeing that supply increasing, which is good news. And is it a bubble? I mean, that's the question that a lot of people looking into the life science universe will be asking at the minute. And when you look at some of the pricing, some of the cap rates that people are going in at, yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. I, don't, I Personally, I don't think it is a bubble. I mean, a bubble suggests that it's about to burst and there'll be nothing to show for it. I think what we are seeing is, particularly since you know COVID hit, one of the impacts from a real estate perspective was that there were a lot of investors that started to look at the market much more seriously. And a lot of new entrants came forward. The weight of capital that is looking at this sector has never been higher. We've started to track that in quite a lot of detail. Beginning of last year, 21, it was about 15 billion looking to deploy into the UK market. Now it's at the end of last year, we think it's 20. So when you compare that to actually what's traded, which was about two and a half billion just under last year, you've essentially got 10 to 1, 9 to 1 capital in terms of deployment. So I think that's certainly added to some of the pricing, but I think people are also you know, they understand the demand drivers of this sector better than they have done before. And they are pricing in some of that growth. And it's competitive. You can't avoid that. It's clear mm. in the market. It's interesting because there's the dynamic shift with pricing. Almost, It's almost a bit, it's pricing in that future growth, as you say, a bit like equity markets do, which is quite rare for real estate. It's not something that we've seen in previous cycles with other growth asset classes. It was never the case with student housing as that grew. And that was another sector that JLL has always been a, a leader in. That took time, right? It took time to settle down. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of similarities, I think, between what we're seeing in the life sciences sector is becoming its own standalone asset class in comparison to some of the other yeah. markets that have evolved, like student housing, like build to rent. But in terms of actually pricing in that growth day one, I think it's not necessarily saying that that's all being baked in day one in terms of the price that's being paid. I think there is just a better understanding of how we are seeing that rental growth change over time. And there is a severe lack of suitable stock. There's only really a finite amount of supply in some of these established markets. Yeah. I mentioned the weight of capital that's looking to try to get into it. And you've got sort of all of these combination of factors that's pushing competitiveness and therefore pricing. But it'll be interesting. I think we've seen, I mentioned that sort of volume of capital. I think the number of people that made up the 15 has dropped to make up the number of 20. So what we've seen is that people started to look at the market think life sciences sounds interesting we can sort of see the growth factors but perhaps they then step back because to more familiar territory in terms of the real estate that they deploy capital into well because it's too difficult right and yeah, glenn hard. glenn you can speak to this right it's not an easy sector to get into it isn't just a case of coming in putting up a building and hiring jll to go and rent it out for mm. you no, it is really, really difficult. And you need to know what you're doing. And it's really easy to make big mistakes in it, which is why 
you do engage people like JLL to advise you on this because there are a lot of people who don't really know the sector very well at the moment. There's mm. a lot of people coming up to speed quite quickly. And I think it's a good thing to have more people coming into the sector. It's professionalizing what was previously actually quite public sectory. Um, and yeah. now it's a much more professional provision. And in terms of pioneer groups, so many listeners may have seen the big headline deal that you did with Harrison Street last year. Harrison Street, one of Europe's biggest investors, one of the world's biggest investors in alternative sectors, alternative real estate asset classes, such as uh, the aforementioned student housing. But they've been a big backer of life sciences across the States and, and now with you guys in Europe. And you've got quite a unique position, don't you, in your vertically integrated business. You've got presence right across the UK, England, Wales, and Scotland, which no one else has. And you've also got a blend of different offers from the real estate and the incubation side, as well as investment. Yeah, I mean, we're the only organization that actually has, firstly, the geographical spread across the UK. And then on top of that, we actually create the companies and we invest in the companies as well as creating that whole ecosystem. A lot of people talk about it, but there's a lot of signposting that goes on in reality. Well, that's the real estate world, isn't it? I mean, um, that's, and, what, what, does, what does it all mean, though? So, I mean, explain to us why that matters. Why does somebody in Glasgow care if you have another innovation center in Cardiff? What's the benefit to an occupier that might be in Nottingham or Glasgow uh, or- so um, there's loads of benefits, but one of the main one is that it's a single community. So we have systems that enable everybody to talk to each other, and we have people whose job it is to put companies in touch. So whereas on a single site, you often get companies working together because they bump into each other. Yeah. And on a single site, you might have 30, 40 companies. Well, we've got four or 500 companies across all our sites. So if you have that same serendipity but across all those different companies you Mm. can just incredibly magnify it so that's one of the huge benefits and we have companies that go off to well in the days before covid they would go off to events together and have marketing stands they would subcontract to each other and they would submit grants together and you just have that added level of trust because you're all part of the same community and these are some of the things that you do as a almost a curator in chief helping people with you know such brilliant things as grant submissions and all of the fun procurement that must come with dealing with public sector partners and other colleagues in government and presumably some of the big pharmaceutical businesses as well yeah we have somebody um, miranda nags who heads up all that side of the business her role is to you know, make that work and do that as efficiently as possible. And in doing that, she also brings along actually more than 250 people in our expert network. So these are people who are, had senior positions in the pharmaceutical sector or they're entrepreneurs who've been there and done it. And they can bring their skills to bear on early stage companies mm. as well. So they can phone them up and say, what do you think about this? They can act as mentors. They can sit on the board. So it's just a massive community yeah. that you don't get when you're a smaller scale. And in terms of the demand from the big pharmaceutical companies, looking at this sector in the way that we have, you could see a massive decline in in-house R&D spend from many companies that are essentially outsourcing it to many of the scale-up businesses that you're housing. What do you think was the cause for that? Why did that separation almost take place two decades ago? I think in part it was because there are just issues of being big, yeah, productivity tends to decline when you're bigger and inefficiencies creep in, whereas the small, nimble companies 
are able to move faster. Mm. And so there is a logic to large pharmaceutical companies still doing some of their own in-house R&D, but really scouting for the next big thing. Yeah. And that's why we have partnerships with Estella. So we've done one with AbbVie, which was announced just the other day. And it's all about looking for the next big thing. And that's really important to the pharmaceutical companies. Chris Walters, in terms of the next big thing and understanding where it's going to land, you've recently published some research with Pioneer Group looking at where VC funding is going. And and predictably, lots of it is going to the southeast. But excitingly, for people like Andy Street, future prime minister, he would probably say, although he's not here to defend himself, West Midlands is a big pit of innovation funding at the minute and thankfully there's also a lot of money going into the southwest and and up and down the country quite broadly isn't it? it's not all about the oxford cambridge arc yeah completely and i think it's really important to think about the life sciences industry encompassing the whole of the uk because there is so much opportunity across all of these different cities and clusters naturally they're at different stages in terms of maturity a lot of real estate investors particularly the new entrants, understandably, will be focused on markets like Cambridge, Oxford, London, because they can see the weight of companies there, the weight of capital, and how those companies are growing. But you're right, Andy, you know, the story in the rest of the UK is really strong. And the key thing, I think, is that each of these clusters have their own specialism. They Mm. have a field of research that they're undertaking, which is closely linked to the type of academic activity the type of research that's taking place what the actual hospitals in a lot of cases teaching hospitals are doing and so a scientific specialist they're solving different problems researching different types of issue yeah absolutely and we spend a lot of time as a house looking at the data you know we spend probably more time looking at non-real estate data than traditional data around the market around take up demand supply etc clearly that's important but actually getting under the skin of what drives company creation, growth, and keeps talent to stay in a particular location is more important than I think the real estate in a lot of cases because it drives the solution. You yeah. know, Glenn mentioned that at the beginning. I think the science has to come first, and that's something that we focus on as a real estate advisor. We're trying to get that right at the beginning, really. And the reason we look at that both as JLL and Pioneer Group is that with the startups, they are the future. So, you know, the startups of today are the 50, 100 million plus turnover companies in five year time, and they'll want significant amounts of space. So you're for uh, looking at how the market is going to develop in different locations. Mm. And what culturally are some of the differences between different locations? When you're touring around different campuses, how does being in Nottingham differ from being in Kent or Scotland? What's the sort of difference in vibe and in in the way people approach things uh, i'm not sure there's a massive difference in the way that people approach things as chris said there's definitely a difference in specialism so there's a massive amount of chemistry companies mm. in the nottingham area so um, explain what that means so for people that might be sort of scratching their heads at this point thinking well, i'm not quite sure what that means chemistry company no, tell us, I suppose, give, give us two or three of the different specialisms that you see across the portfolio. So sticking with Nottingham, there's a company in Nottingham called Signature Discovery. And what they're doing is helping to create the molecules that then go on to be drugs. And they need to be designed and sculpted effectively into the right format. And so they have massive teams of chemists. They've got more chemists concentrated in that building than anywhere else in the country wow and so they've grown they started out with biocity 
about 15 years ago, I mm. think it is now, with four people. They've now, in multiple sites, they've got well over 500. They're heading towards doubling that over the next few years. They've had big private equity investment into the business. So, yeah, that's one of the key businesses that represent that location, I guess. And they have a big influence on what happens around because they buy up other companies in the ecosystem. They bought one of our investees, Xenogesis, a year or so ago, bought another tenant, Renesai, before that. And all that consolidation changes the nature of the company base and other companies then move in to be near them and work with them. And so it really sets the tone for, yeah. for Nottingham. And Chris, from a valuation perspective and understanding how such sub-markets are going to grow, I mean, it sounds incredibly complex and it sounds like there's an incredible amount of moving parts that an investor needs to consider. They've got to understand what is the scientific problem these guys are solving? How is this company growing? Where's the funding for this company? There's lots of moving parts that can determine whether something might be worth you know, quite a considerable amount more than what it might be trading at right now. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, as, as I said, I think it is a lot more than just the standard real estate metrics around what you can point to in terms of take up and, and active demand and, and existing supply or forecasted supply. Certainly understanding the market, what's driving the market, how you think that might change over time is really important. And it should have a very significant influence on the type of physical real estate that you deliver. Glenn was just mentioning about Nottingham and the fact that it's got a high concentration of chemists there. Yeah. Now, if you're delivering space that's suitable for a pharma tech digital health company that just needs offices and you're not delivering a highly specialized lab environment for a chemistry user, you've got it wrong. And it's a mistake you can't really afford to make in what is quite a high, you know... Well, it's a high-risk space, isn't it? It's a high-risk space, which is moving at an incredible pace in terms of technological change. So when you think about the sector as a, as a whole and you look at how science was done you know, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it's completely different to how it's done now. The modalities of, of research um, that are being done is, is completely different around the due to the convergence of science and technology so yeah. actually a real estate you know provider of space whether it's pioneer group or, or another you really need to get under the skin of what's driving the market first and foremost and how that will change over time mm. i suspect there'll be many many slightly outdated folk out there who still think it's lab coats and bunsen burners like when they were at school well this yeah, is yeah. definitely not bunsen burners anymore <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's spot on and i think when we talk about the life sciences sector as a house, we will look at the full spectrum of the industry. So whether it's drug discovery and pharma businesses or actually sort of you know, all the way down to medical technology or the digital health, they all need a different type of physical space. Mm. Now, we touched on the fact that in a lot of these locations, they'll have some of that USPs, whether it is chemistry in Nottingham. But as Glenn was, was touching on and just to build on what he was saying, in a lot of cases, that might be the genesis of how that commercial lab space is being delivered. But because of this general convergence of science and tech, actually, as different companies come together, whether they're like-minded or coming from a completely different part of the industry, that's where the innovation happens. And that's where it's really exciting for the mm. UK. And Glenn, how important are links with universities and, and how does Pioneer Group go about making and building and maintaining those links because if we're thinking about some of the growth areas outlined in the report we'll go back to the midlands for example you've got you know, you've got some big big ticket research institutions in mm -hmm. that part of the uk that are doing some amazing stuff 
And if you're building links with places like Warwick or Bristol universities, uh, obviously Bristol's not in the Midlands, but, but it's still got a great research hub within it. And these are going to be great nests of innovation yeah. that, you know, on, on our pure commercial side can fill some buildings, but on the slightly more interesting side are going to solve lots of big problems. Yeah, I mean, universities are obviously central to this sector. They are the, the sources of a lot of innovation. And so we have partnerships with a whole raft of different universities. And one of the ways that those partnerships manifest themselves is we do things like commercialization workshops. You know, I did one last week with uh, Glasgow University, for example, with, and we had about 30 or 40 people. It was all online, of course, at this stage, but 30 or 40 people who are postdocs interested in entrepreneurism. Mm. Some of them might have an idea for a company already and taking them through the processes that we use to develop and grow and set up a company, which isn't just about registering it with Companies House. It's making sure that you know your market, you understand how you're going to get to that market and you know who your customer is and just all the fundamentals and taking them through that process. Mm. So that sort of is a, is a outsourced really, tech transfer process, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's very integrated with the tech transfer, but it's things that we can do that they don't necessarily do with them. Yeah. And then some of those will then go on to the next stage of our process, which we call the accelerator, and that we'll take them through as on a cohort base to start to develop their ideas, test them out. Then we'll take them on to what we call the launch program, which is another 12 months. And at some stage, we might invest in those companies as well. So it's all about extracting the opportunities from the universities, making them as robust a business as we possibly can, and then picking some of the best ones to invest in. And ultimately, that then positions you quite nicely to become a partner of choice for some of these academic institutions and, and other partners in their orbit, right? Yeah, I mean, they, it's a two-way street. We help them with the commercialization of the intellectual property. They help us by providing some really interesting companies that they may be investment opportunities or they may become tenants of our sites. So Chris, from JLL's perspective, what kind of demand are we seeing? Or rather, who's the demand coming from? Is it from startups, scale-ups, spin-outs? Or are we seeing companies want to relocate here from other countries that are attracted by our brilliant weather, great culture and amazing public transit? It's definitely all of the above. I mean, the, the startup report that we touched on earlier is really positive in terms of looking at the increased amount of UK life sciences startups that we've seen in this time series of 2016 to 2020. You know, an increase of 24% is fantastic. And that really demonstrates how at the early stage of a company life cycle, these companies are being created. The key thing, obviously, is those companies continue to be grown over time and there's clearly a lot of evidence of that. When you look at the demand profile of particularly the established markets around Cambridge, Oxford and London, and there are many others across the UK that we've touched on, but we're seeing a lot of activity from those companies being created where they need sort of plug and play incubation type space, but also a lot of those companies that are then growing out, graduating out of that space, taking scale up. So yeah. I'd say in a lot of markets, we're seeing probably a weight of the demand being for those companies that are looking to graduate out of incubation type space. Which Does is, that change the dynamic of what you need to provide? So when your team are going out marketing space, presumably you need a different kind of space for a high growth business than for someone more established like a Vertex or an AZ. 
Absolutely. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier around understanding the market and how that might change over time. So yes, as a company matures, we tend to see that they move away from needing a fully fitted product on a licensed type agreement that's quite short term and flexible, Hmm. moving towards wanting what's called in the market a cold shell where they can take a space and then design it and fit it out for their own specific use. Cold shell. uh, Yeah, it's uh... (laughs) a... Would you, would you like to come back to my cold shell? You've got cold shell, warm <laughs> shell, and fully fitted, essentially, in our world. But I think the you know the short answer to your question is we're seeing it across the board. You mentioned about whether are there companies coming over from international markets into the UK. I think historically, and I'm sure Glenn will have a view on this, historically we've seen as those companies mature and grow, unfortunately they've then flown the nest from the UK and gone to more mature markets like well, the States. Vertex is a good example of that. I mean, and one of the barriers, Glenn, is going to be funding. And this is something you have talked about in the report with JLL, looking at different sources of funding from traditional VCs and growing pool of institutional capital, as well as some of the public sector sources like UKRI, Scottish Enterprise, and, and other funds that are emanating from some of the main colleges. Yeah, I mean, actually, the funding side of things for life sciences is really good at the moment. And that's partly what's driving the demand for real estate. Last year was a record year for investment into the life sciences sector in the UK and globally, in fact. And then from a startup point of view, it was not quite a record year, but it was still very high and massively more than even a you know a decade ago, about you know, three or four times more than we saw going into those early stage companies. So there's no complaints on access to capital then? Um, No, I mean, you could always do with more capital and it could always be more widely dispersed. So Mm. I think the government's still got a lot of work to do on the whole levelling up agenda in terms of not taking money out of Oxford, Cambridge and London because those are the crown jewels and you need to keep those promoted. But if it's going to invest more, then it needs to invest more in some of the world-class university cities that we've got around well absolutely the and I, I fully agree that and, and this is a point i've we've been making uh, for years I, I think in terms of not seeing the arc as some ivory tower that needs to be protected but but celebrated and expanded and if we use the arc properly we can level up many other parts of the country using what you were describing a bit earlier as some kind of national connected ecosystem yeah. rather than thinking you know, in, in silos, as, as we, we often tend to do. Chris Waters, how do we go about doing that? How do we bring into play more of a symbiotic relationship with the US, with the NASDAQ, as opposed to what we seem to sometimes have in the UK, which is an us and them mentality? You're either on the London Stock Exchange or you're on the NASDAQ, but actually you could be on the NASDAQ and still benefiting the UK economy. I think it's about connectivity and, and understanding how those two markets can work complementarily together. We certainly work quite hard with our colleagues in the States to understand what occupiers are looking for and, yeah. and how we can support them in terms of their growth. So I think on the ground in terms of being able to provide advice to those clients and thinking about their future growth story, but clearly there is a, a central government element to this in terms of the public sector providing the right type of support and guidance to those companies. and. The third bit that I touch on is probably around skills. You know, we have some really highly skilled talent within the UK. I think there is more that can be done in trying to encourage those companies when they get to a certain size 
to work with homegrown talent at a management and an exec level because I think that's typically where they start to look at markets like the States in terms of that next phase of their development. So collaboration, I think, is the key word there and and making sure that it's happening on the ground and also at a high level within the public sector. Yeah, yeah. And and Glenn, in terms of uh, just going back to investment for a second because Pioneer Group's recently closed its first investment round which is going to act as an early stage VC partner for many exciting life sciences companies. And again, that's just, this is the first, I can't think of any other company in, in Europe. There are some in the States, but no, but no one in Europe's doing this. And this is a, again, a great way to, to genuinely prove this point you keep making about ecosystems and integration. Yeah, I mean, clearly finance is a key element of growing companies. And we've actually been investing in early stage life science companies for quite a few years now, well over five or six years, and we've had a lot of success. We had some great returns. Our average return on our exits is 14 times so far, what we put in. Mm. And so we thought we'll go ahead and raise a new fund. And this is the first time we've raised an EIS fund, which is Enterprise Investment Scheme, which is a tax-efficient way for people to invest through us into life science companies that we develop or are based on our site. And We've exceeded our target and we're really pleased that we're going to start investing in that about the uh, next couple of weeks. And, and what does that then look like? How do you then deploy that money? How do you support those companies? And is there a conflict of interest between owning business and providing them property? Uh, we do have sort of separation between the investment side of things and okay. the property side of things. So that you know, what we don't want to do is invest in a company just so that it becomes a tenant. We want to invest, apart from the fact that there's a fair chunk of my own money in this fund. So I want to make sure that that's going into <laughs> into good companies. Well, it's always good to have um, a co-investor. I mean, that's, you know. Exactly. So, you know, the first and foremost priority is investing in good quality companies that are going to have a, a great mm. chance of being a fantastic exit. And what does that look like? Because, again, in the landscape now, that is very different from when you began your career which, what are you uh, saying? I'm saying I'm saying you're absolutely looking fantastic, Glenn. No one would know you're only 27. Um, no, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that the landscape of 20 year leases has been replaced by a landscape of licenses and flexible space and revenue links, rents, which is a very very different risk proposition from that which people conventionally were seeking in, in, in any kind of commercial real estate transaction. So I says I'm asking two questions. I'm asking what does good look like and how do you marry up the relatively spotty nature of how these companies perform financially with the sorts of conventional risk-adjusted returns that a real estate investor wants from a building? Yeah, well, traditionally, a real estate investor or developer would look at the type of population of life science companies that you have in much of our real estate. And yeah and run a mile actually that's not quite the case now because we have well, a lot doing of the absolute opposite aren't they well for a start everybody's going in the opposite direction and also we've got a lot of large-scale companies as well like gw pharma which is a major we're just building another sixty thousand square feet for them at mm. ken science park but what you have to do is think about these smaller companies on a portfolio basis and together they are very very sustainable and very good credit risk and in fact in Nottingham, when we looked at the first 15 years, the survival rate of companies there was 91%, which is 
actually better than most other industries i think so mm. most people would be pretty happy with that wouldn't they yeah and, and and i think that's probably because you create this supportive environment you select the companies before they come in so you're not just letting any old company in through the door once they're in there you're helping them to grow and become established and so you get much higher survival rates it's mm. the whole thing is is around to some extent enlightened self-interest the more you do to support the companies the faster they grow the more sustainable they'll be the more space they'll take. Well, giving is better than receiving. Chris Walters' final words. It all sounds very difficult from what Glenn said. It, it, it's, it, it sounds quite hard work. Is this something you think that can really grow exponentially? Is the real estate universe, is it able to deliver these sorts of things at scale? It's in Glenn's interest to make it sound difficult, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, jokes aside, it's not easy. It's not a traditional asset class. I think there are a lot of things here that need to be thought about to make sure that you're delivering a real estate product that's fit for use. There is a challenge, as I mentioned, around the fast-paced nature of this sector. You know, The fact that the different types of real estate that these companies may need over time, even over like a five-year lease, yeah could change quite substantially. So how do you provide that space as a landlord, as a developer is challenging? There's then challenges around actually securing the space as we've touched on, actually yeah. getting the consent and then actually delivering it. So it is difficult, but you know, Pioneer Group and others are clearly having success in this market in the UK. As I touched on, there's been a lot of investment that's happened over the past 18 months and there will be new supply. The scale piece is interesting. You know, We track... The market at the moment, we think there's just over 40 million square feet of science and tech related real estate, if you exclude big corporates. When you look at the pipeline, we think that's going to hit 80 million by 2030. So the opportunity here in the UK is substantial. The key thing will be making sure that you're delivering the right type of product to target your occupy market so that you can not only create investment value, but make sure that it's sustainable over time. And that's the tricky bit. Well, let's leave it there. Sounds a fascinating uh, few years ahead for everybody involved. Chris Walters from JLL, Glenn Crocker from Pioneer Group, and you can download uh, the research that we'll be talking about here from JLL's website, from the uh, Pioneer Group website. Thank you very much for listening. Um, If you want to uh, learn anything more about the market, you can obviously drop these guys an email through their respective websites. You can subscribe to PropCast by searching PropCast on Spotify, on Apple, on SoundCloud, anywhere else. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.